I'm going to be continuing this morning with uh, preaching in John chapter 5, but I'm going to be focusing this morning on, on verses 16 to 30. Verses 16 to 30, it's uh, page 804 in your pew Bible. John chapter 5, verse 16. Would you please stand out of reverence for the word of our Lord? And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the son could do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son likewise does. For the father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these we will show him so that you may marvel. For as the father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the son gives life to whom he will. The father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the son, that all may honor the son just as they honor the father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself... So he has granted the Son also to have life in himself, and he has given him authority to execute a judgment, because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Well, this morning we're going to be discussing one of the most difficult of doctrines. There's perhaps no other doctrine that has caused such debate in the history of the church. There's been no greater opportunity in the study of this doctrine to fall into heresy, but also no greater opportunity for us to recalibrate our human thinking with the biblical testimony. I'm speaking here of the doctrine of the Trinity, that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit is one God in three persons. The concept that God is one and yet three is something that our, our human minds can't really comprehend. Yet this is exactly what the Bible declares. And in an attempt to explain it, people have often resorted to explanations and illustrations that have almost invariably moved away from the biblical witness and have begun to slide into heresy. And uh, as I began to, to prepare this, this message, I realized it was, uh, it was overly ambitious of me to try to handle this text in, uh, in, in one week, so I've decided to, to break it up into, uh, well, at this stage, at least two weeks. 
So um, in discussing the, the doctrine of the Trinity and the, probably the, the best way to, to, to begin to understand it is by looking at the, the heresies that arose as a result of the study of the Trinity. And, and really the, the first time that this that heresy regarding who God is, the nature of God as three in one, the first time that that really began to, to, to take root was in the, in the fourth century, when Arius, uh, a popular minister from Alexandria, proposed that the Son was not co-eternal with the Father, and that the Son had been created by the Father later on. Arius and his followers adopted the motto, there was when he was not. Now this is really no small matter because what is being called into question here is the deity of Jesus Christ. Arius and his followers appealed to proof texts such as, as John 14, 28, 28, where Jesus says that the Father is, is greater than I. And in Colossians 1.15, where it said that the, the Son is the, the firstborn of all creation. And what they've done in, in adopting these proof texts, they've, they've ripped these verses out of their context in order to, to develop their theory, but have almost immediately dissolved into heretical positions. Alexander, the bishop of Alexandria, countered that the word was divine and could not have been created but existed eternally with the Father. And Alexander appealed to verses such as, as John 10.30. This is the one that is, is on, your, on the cover of your bulletin, where Jesus said, I and the Father are one. And when you understand that verse in its context, Jesus is saying that he is God. And as we'll see, the Pharisees understood that, and their response is that they wanted to stone Jesus for blasphemy. Because he was saying that he is God. But this, this debate um, escalated until uh, the year 325 when, when Constantine convened the Council of Nicaea. Now, some view Constantine as a, as a hero of the faith, but I think it's, it's very likely that his so-called conversion was actually more one of political expediency that he saw that the, the empire was breaking up and he saw that Christianity, which was taking root despite the systematic efforts of Rome to, to, to squash it, that, the, that Christianity was something under which he could unite the empire. Now, we really don't know. We won't really know until final judgment exactly where his heart was at, but nonetheless, in 325, Constantine convened, convened the Council of Nicaea. And he, he gathered bishops, he summoned bishops from, from all over Christendom. There were somewhere around 300 bishops that were gathered to Nicaea in 325. And at stake there was other doctrines, such essential doctrines, like the, what, what constituted the canon of Scripture, but the main issue that was at stake was the deity of Christ. In that vein, another heretical position also resurfaced at Nicaea, that of, of modalism. Modalism is the view that there is no trinity, but that there is one God in three different modes. Um, in other words, there is no distinction between father and son. And what a, what a modalist would teach is that it was actually the father who suffered on the cross. And this is also clearly opposed 
to the doctrine of the Trinity that Scripture teaches us. Just quickly, in answer to this, it, it, we look at Isaiah 53 where it talks about where the, the prophet writes about how it was the will of the Father to crush the Messiah. Or think about Jesus on the cross calling out, My God, my God, who has forsaken me? If, if there is no distinction between Father and Son, then who exactly was Jesus speaking to from the cross? Or who was present at, at Jesus' baptism when the Father said from heaven, Behold, this is my Son with whom I am well pleased, and the Holy Spirit descended on him like a dove? We need to be so careful that when we, when we come across something that is difficult for us to understand, like the Trinity, that we, that we don't just adopt a simplistic view that, that undermines the biblical testimony. In an attempt to explain the nature of the Son, Eusebius of Caesarea suggested the term homoi, homoi usius, which means of similar substance. Homoi usius. Now, this might seem plausible because the, 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 the view that the Father and the Son are similar. The Father and the Son are similar. That's what homoi, which means similar, usius, substance means. But this position is also heresy because it undermines the absolute deity of Christ. In a similar way, if you talk to a Muslim about Christ, he will tell you that they, that they reverence Isa, that they respect Isa as a prophet. Isa is, is the Arabic word for Jesus. But the thing is with Muslims is that they, they revere Jesus as just a prophet, as just a prophet. Jesus isn't just a prophet. He's the Son of God. To view him as an iota less than who he is, is to be guilty of blasphemy. Jesus is not just similar to God. Jesus is God. God incarnate of the same substance. What a difference an eye makes. Constantine suggested the word homoousius. Homoousius, which means of the same substance, not homoousius, homoousius, and suggested that this be included in the creed. It's the same word minus the I between the O's, homoousius. But this term didn't originate with Constantine. This actually goes back more than 100 years to Tertullian, who said that in God there are three persons and one substance. Three persons and one substance. After much discussion and debate, the council agreed to renounce the Arian position and affirm the biblical teaching on the Trinity. The council asserted that the Father and Son are not of similar substance, homoousius, but homoousius, the same substance. The same substance. This is not just an academic issue. This is a huge issue, and this, this under, if you assume a false position here, undermines the deity of Christ and undermines the salvation that can be found only in Him. The Father and the Son share the divine nature. 
From the council came the Nicene Creed. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of, of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, a very God, a very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made. Now, there are, are various, various creeds and, and views that, uh, that are, are similar to this. There's various denominations and even various religions that would actually adopt this creed. This is like a lowest common denominator. You really need to affirm more than this in order to be able to call yourself a Christian. Because the Roman Catholics would affirm this as well, but they deny other fundamental biblical tenets. But this Nicene Creed, it's actually reflected in our own church's statement of faith. We believe that Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, that He is truly and eternally God, equal with the Father and the Holy Spirit, and that in one person of Christ there are two natures, the divine and the human, each distinct and dissolubly united. So you might be wondering here, what, what do these ancient heresies have to do with us? I mean, after all, this was 1,700 years ago. Well, both Arianism and modalism still continue to deceive people to this day. Arianism is one of the key heretical beliefs that is held by the so-called Jehovah's Witnesses. They believe that Jesus Christ is a created being. They believe that he is Michael, the archangel. Now, the name Jehovah's Witness is actually a misnomer. They are not witnesses to or of Jehovah or Yahweh. They have no idea who he is. Yahweh, or the I Am of the Old Testament, is Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God. Modalism is also common today. It's the view of the United Pentecostal Church. This group has been labeled a cult, not just by evangelicals, but also by, by other Pentecostal, uh, Pentecostal groups. Among other heretical views, such as the view that only those who are baptized are saved, and that only those who speak in tongues have the Holy Spirit, they believe in Jesus only. Jesus only, that, that God exists in three different modes, that there is no trinity. And each of these cults, in an undermining who God really is, they leave their, their adherents with no access to God. That's why both of these groups are so focused on works, because they don't know grace. They're still dead in their trespasses and sins. But this nature, the nature of the Son, is, that, is the very issue that created the conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees in our passage this morning. We're picking up where we left off last week with increasing rejection of and hostility towards Jesus. Now, this rejection and persecution is going to increase and multiply and will eventually lead to the cross. Here, the Pharisees accuse Jesus of heresy because he's making himself equal with God. In this passage, we see the themes that were introduced 
in John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. Herman Ritterboss explains it beautifully. He says, all this brings into expression, in variety of phrases and innumerable, innumerable variations, the great themes of the prologue. The Word became flesh, and the Word was God. That is, both the identity of action and speech of the Father and the Son, an identity proceeding from the deity of the Word. In the incarnation of the Word, the Son reveals himself as distinct from the Father, as the one who is sent by the Father and who does what he sees the Father doing and what the Father will show him. Now, there's two themes here, there are two terms here that I need to explain before we proceed. And these are, uh, these are uh, theological words that will probably be, be new to many of you here. Um, the first is ontological trinity, and the second is economic trinity. Now, ontology deals with the, the essence or the nature of being, about what something is in its essence. As Vern Poitras explains, when we refer to the ontological trinity, we're talking about God as he is in his own existence before creation and independent of creation. According to Carm, the, the Christian Apologetics and Research Ministry, the ontological trinity means that all three persons within the Godhead are equal in nature, in essence, and in attributes. So Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, and so on. Now this, this differs from the economic trinity, which deals instead with the relationship of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit within the trinity itself, and within the relationship of the Godhead with his creation, with us. Now, both of these are crucial for us to understand if we really want to understand this text. As Poitras says, the, the Trinity in economic operations reveals the ontological Trinity. Basically, what this means is what God does reveals who God is. What God does reveals who God is. So this morning we're going to see that what Jesus does reveals who Jesus is. And then next week we're going to see that Jesus' authority reveals who he is. And that Jesus de deserves supreme honor because of who he is. So my three points for this week is the Father and the Son do the same things. We'll see that in verses 16 to 20 and verse 30. The Father and the Son have the same authority for next week. That's verses 21 to 22 and 24 to 29. And these actually point to the central verse of the passage, which is verse 23. The Father and the Son deserve the same honor. Let me just read that because this is where it all points. That all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. So we'll see by what Jesus does and by the authority that Jesus holds that he is worthy of our worship. We'll conclude that next week. So for today, let's have a look at, at the fact that the Father and the Son do the same things. Again, this is verses 16 to 20 and verse 30. In verse 16, we see that the, the, the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he had done these things on the Sabbath. What are the these things that are being talked about here? Well, the first is that 
that Jesus healed this lame man on the Sabbath. And the second is that Jesus commanded this man to take up his, his bed and walk also on the Sabbath. Now the Pharisees were angry because what Jesus did conflicted with their fleshly understanding of the law. We talked about this last week. Remember that the Pharisees were relying upon their, their, their man-made tradition. They were relying on the Mishnah and its, its, its systematized set of, of rules of, of what you were not supposed to do. And with respect to the Sabbath, they had 39 separate commands prohibiting what could be done on the Sabbath. And the 39th dictates that it is unlawful to transport an object between a private domain and a public domain on for a distance of four cubits within the public domain. There is no biblical warrant for this command. Why, why four cubits? Why not five or why not three? They, they were just making this up and, and de declaring that you had to uphold these man-made traditions or you weren't a true believer. And this is, this is what happens repeatedly with the, the Pharisees. It's, it's why Jesus repeatedly came into conflict with them, because he was intentionally bringing himself into conflict with them. Everything that Jesus did, he did with intentionality. Repeatedly, he would heal on the Sabbath. Of course, he would heal on other days too, but he would intentionally do so on the Sabbath in front of the Pharisees in order to contradict their false views, and we talked a bit about that. We talked a lot extensively about this last week. We'll see it again in a few weeks in John chapter nine. But please turn with me to to Matthew chapter twelve. In verse nine, we see that that there was what Jesus came to the synagogue, and there was a man there with a withered hand. And so the Jews asked Jesus, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? And they did so that they might accuse him. He said to them, which one of you has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out, and it was restored healthy like any other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. And I want you to think about the wickedness of their hearts. Jesus had just miraculously healed a man, and they're wanting to destroy him because he didn't do so according to an external man-made command. J.C. Ryle points out that Jesus here clears the way of the day of rest from the false and superstitious teaching of the Jews about the right way of observing it. He shows us clearly that works of necessity and works of, of mercy are no breach of the fourth commandment. Jesus, Jesus is showing himself to be the Lord of the Sabbath. And with that authority, he is demonstrating that God made the Sabbath for man and not man for the Sabbath. There in Matthew chapter 12, verse 5, Jesus says that the, that the priests who are working on the Sabbath in the temple are not defiling the temple. They're, they're not guilty. Because what they're doing, they're doing as 
worship. It's a necessary part of their worship. And it's a good thing too, otherwise I would be breaking the Sabbath by standing here and preaching this sermon. So there, there are things that the, the Pharisees in their false understanding had added to the word of God. But now in verse 17, Jesus adds fuel to the fire by answering the Pharisees, my father is working until now and I am working. Now before we get into the implications of this statement, we need to ask what exactly Jesus means. Think about it in terms of the immediate context. Jesus is saying that the father has been working on the Sabbath until now and he is working. Again, J.C. Ryle explains that Jesus is saying that though my father rested on the seventh day from his work of creation, he has never rested for a moment from his providential government of the world and from his merciful work of supplying the daily needs of all his creatures. Likewise, the son says, I work works of mercy on the Sabbath day. I do not break the fourth commandment when I heal the sick any more than the father breaks it when he causes the sun to rise and the grass to grow on the Sabbath. William Hendrickson says it like this, If up to this very moment the Father of Jesus is carrying on the work of preservation and redemption, how should not the Son who stands in the closest possible relation to Him do the same? In the final analysis, Father and Son are engaged in one task. So you understand what this means here? When the Father rested on the seventh day, when he laid down that pattern of one day in rest, of one day of rest in every seven, he was resting from his work of creation. He wasn't resting from his work of governing the universe. And the Son is doing the same kind of work when he mercifully heals on the Sabbath day. Jesus is showing the Pharisees just how wrong they were about Sabbath keeping. But the implications of this went far beyond the Sabbath. Jesus is also saying that he's doing the same kind of work as the Father. Jesus said his Father was working and so was he. Now by calling God his Father, he was declaring himself to be the Son of God. The ESV study Bible is helpful here. It says Jesus was claiming to be the Son of God, not in the way that ordinary human believers are sons of God, but in the sense of one who was equal to God in his nature and in every way, yet who related to God in a father-son relationship. Another point wasn't lost on the Pharisees. They said in verse 18, it says in verse 18, this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So in their minds, Jesus was breaking the Sabbath regulations. And Jesus was calling himself equal with God. But this is far bigger than saying, like father, like son. Jesus isn't just saying he's like the father, remember the homoousius, homoousius debate? He's saying that he and the father are one. They don't just do the same things. They're made up of the same essence. Ontologically, they are the same. And the Pharisees here knew what Jesus was saying, and they wanted to kill him for it. Now, they're not bold enough here yet. 
They don't have enough of a head of steam behind them to actually try to do it. They're beginning to plan it. But by the time we get to John chapter 10, where Jesus says, I and the Father, I and the Father are one, they're going to take up stones to stone him. In verses 19 and 20, Jesus answered them saying, he knows what's happening in their hearts, and he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father sees, so whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing, and greater works than these he will show him, so that you may marvel. Now the Son doesn't just do the kind of work that the Father does on the Sabbath. The Son is doing the same kind of work as the Father all the time. All the time. He says something very similar in verse 30. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Now, the best way to translate verse 19 is to say that the Son can do nothing from himself. That's, that's the best translation from the Greek. It's not that the Son can't do anything without the Father's help. It's that the Son can't do anything differently from the Father because they are one, because they're united. They're united. They can't do anything that is of, of, of a contrary nature because they're unified in the core of their being. So although they're equal, the Son submits to the Father. Now Jesus says similarly in, in John 8, verses 28 and 29, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, and that I do nothing of my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And He who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for always do the things that are pleasing to Him. Now this is where we need to understand and consider the, the ontological trinity and the economic trinity. In their essence, the Father and the Son are the same. But when it comes to their individual roles, they are different. To deny either point is to deny the clear teaching of Scripture. Please turn in your Bible to Philippians chapter 2. In verses 5 to 7, we see that Jesus Christ, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Jesus, Jesus wasn't, didn't have to grasp for equality with God. He had equality with God. But even though he had equality with God, in verse 7, he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Now down in verse 10, it says that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. We'll talk about this next week, Lord willing. But this is a direct quote from Isaiah chapter 45. Words attributed to Yahweh. Jesus is God, fully equal with God, yet he submitted himself to the Father for our sake. 
anything less than that, and we are dead in our trespasses and sins, just like the so-called Jehovah's Witnesses and just like the United Pentecostals. Because man sinned, it was necessary for a man to die. Because the, our guilt was infinite, the sacrifice for sin needed to be infinite. Because man disobeyed, we needed a man to obey on our behalf. Because the standard of obedience is absolute perfection, we needed a holy God to obey on our behalf. And this is exactly why Jesus, the Messiah, needed to be fully God and fully man. The Father and the Son are the, of the same essence, but they have different roles. Now they're doing essentially the same things, but they have a different part to play. In the plan of salvation, the Father elects and sends, the Son obeys and dies, and the Spirit regenerates and applies. All to bring about God's plan of redemption. I find it so amazing that, that members of the, the Watchtower tract cult and others who were deceived by the Arian heresy appealed to Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. Please, please turn with me there. Colossians 1, 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Now, Arians take this verse and they say, look, Jesus is firstborn. He's born in creation, so he, there, there must be a time that Jesus did not exist. Now, aside from the fact that they're, they're not, they haven't ever tried to figure out what firstborn means, in Psalms 84, David, who is the seventh son, the youngest son of Jesse, is referred to as the firstborn. Firstborn is as much a title as it is a, a birth order. Of course, it can refer to birth order, but, but here it refers to title. And the way that you determine that is by looking at the context. Look at the context in verses 16 to 18. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. How could Jesus have been the firstborn of, of creation if by him all things were created? Now, if you were to look at the, the corrupt New World translation that's used by the Jehovah Witnesses, they actually, at each one of these all things, they insert the word other in brackets. By him, all other things were created. Completely changing and undermining the clear teaching of the, of the text. Even though the, their, the Watchtower Tract Society does acknowledge that that word is not in the original Greek, they've shamelessly inserted it because it doesn't line up with their corrupt theology. So we need to, to consider here 
what the Word of God actually says. When we consider the Trinity, you know, I'm really not too concerned that I can't get my head around the Trinity. I'd be more concerned if I, if I thought I could. We have the clear testimony of Scripture, and we need to submit ourselves to what the Word of God says. Well, let the example of the, of the Watchtower Tract Society be a warning for us. A warning against proof texting. A warning against pulling verses out of their context and then adapting them and adopting them into our theology. Instead, we need to submit ourselves to the entire Word of God, comparing Scripture with Scripture in order to determine reality. Because remember, the Father is, is seeking worshipers who will worship Him in spirit and in truth. As soon as we try to, to twist anything in Scripture, or try to remove anything from the Scripture because it, it's not comfortable for us, or try to add to the Scripture, we're guilty of the same types of things that these Pharisees were guilty of, these same Pharisees who wanted to kill Jesus. We need to strive against our flesh and to allow the Word of God, allow the sword of the Spirit to work in our hearts so that we might grow in our understanding of who God is. Jesus, at the same time that he was physically here in his creation, this blows my mind, he was at the same time omnipotently upholding the universe by the word of his power. Hebrews 1.3 tells us he is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. After his work on earth was done, Jesus sat down. But beloved, he is still working. Let's pray together.